9, 26 through 27, as we kind of have been going back to this verse, uh, as we enter into uh, every, um, every week of this study, setting the tone for how we want to approach these things we've talked about week to week. And so let's read that together. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 through 27. It'll be on the screen, or if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're just going to kind of use this as our jumping point going into the rest of this morning. Verse 26, it says, it says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself have been disqualified. Church, I just want us to take a second as we close our eyes, bow our heads, as we kind of begin to enter into the text and our study this morning that if you've come in today, and man, all of us have in so many ways, come in today with something, some type of burden, some type of struggle, some type of difficult situation you're navigating through, and I pray this morning we can lay that at the feet of Jesus and just trust in Him, God, to give us direction, God, to train us, to empower us, to lead, guide, and direct us as we navigate those things. So let us pray together this morning, church, as we enter into this time, as we're just, just really honest with ourselves and with the Lord. And we acknowledge our need for Him and His guidance and direction this morning. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for the text. God, we thank You for, for your, the Bible, God, that we can go to for the confidence and the courage that we need to navigate the life ahead of us. Father God, I thank You for Your promises. I thank You for Your faithfulness to Your people. God, I thank You that there's no point in our lives that we're ever navigating dark spaces because when we're indwelt by You, we carry the light with us. God, that there's no place that your light doesn't invade when we have put our faith in you and trust and depend on you. So, Father God, I just pray this morning that you just open our eyes to your word. God, I pray you open our eyes to the challenge you have for us today. Lord, I pray this morning we lay down our burdens, God, at your feet, knowing that you'll pick them up and carry them along with us. Father God, I just ask you to bless our time and bless everything we do, God. And I pray that everything we do would be for your glory and honor of God. We love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen, church. So the last few weeks we've been talking through, and uh, over the, the course of nine weeks, we'll be going through a study that uh, we've called The Way We Walk. It's a study on spiritual disciplines and kind of these practical things that we participate in our day-to-day -day walk as Christians and how we engage those things and how they are our means of experiencing God's grace, truly beginning to embrace God's grace and what He has for us. And that these disciplines are meant to deepen our relationship with God and challenge us to step into life's battles confidently. Because every single day that we walk, we walk into new battles. Every single day that we navigate, we navigate with new struggles and new difficulties and new uncertainties. And so, you know, as we know, the Bible communicates this life as warfare. And so the way that we kind of, in the way that Paul is communicating here in 1 Corinthians, the way that we prepare for that warfare is we discipline, and he's speaking of it in a physical term, that as a runner, as a boxer, that we discipline our bodies to be able and be ready to participate in the activity or in the competition or in the opposition that's ahead of us. And so when we translate that over to our spiritual sense, he's communicating the same thing to us. That if we want to be ready... Okay? Not when the opposition is here, not when the difficulty is here, not when the struggle is here, but if we want to be ready to face those things and to experience victory in those things, He calls us to this lifestyle of discipline. 
And so what we've been talking about over the few weeks, specifically these first three weeks, have been talking about disciplines with, uh, for my walk with God, for our walk with God. And so we've talked about prayer the first week, we talked about fasting last week, and this week we've talked about study. And so when we think about those three things, when we talked about prayer, we talked about prayer being how we align our heart with God, with the will of God, with the desires of God, with His desires for us. Uh, when we talked about fasting, it was uh, in a sense speaking of denying ourselves, uh, that we were denying ourselves for God, to align ourselves with God, deny ourselves for God. And this morning uh, would be, uh, as we talk about study, I pray that we see that this is our invitation to partake of God. To partake of God, that uh, that fasting was 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 denying ourselves of something to see more of God, and that study is us embracing, kind of feasting on what God has for us and His promises and His truths. Richard Foster said this. He's a writer that has written extensively on spiritual disciplines. He said, "The purpose of the spiritual disciplines is the total transformation of the person. They aim at replacing destructive habits." with new life-giving habits. And nowhere is this purpose more clearly seen than in the discipline of study. You know, and this is something for us as as modern-day Christians that I believe more than any other aspect of our life that we've lost focus on, that we've, like we talked about even with the other disciplines, that we don't see the necessity of, we don't believe that we really truly need it. Just some statistics that we can uh, talk through a little bit. uh, I was reading through some statistics this past week. One in five Christians say they never read the Bible. One in five Christians say they never read the Bible. Only 42% of Christians believe it is even essential, even an essential part of our lives. You know, and for us, you know, what, what we have to remember, what we have to understand, and for us, we're so far removed from that. Especially because we live in a country where you can go to any store in the world and buy one of these. You can get on this device and you can download it and we can look at it. You know, there are places all over the world where this book is illegal. Where this book, where you can be put in prison, you can be killed and murdered for owning this book. People that get these books for the first time and they begin to read it, they, they literally weep because they're so overwhelmed with the truths that are in it. And for us, it's so readily available. I mean, I don't know, but you have like 10 or 12 of these at my house. And some people may never even see these in their lifetime. And for, so for us, we, we take this word for granted so much. Remembering, and we've talked about this before, people like William Tyndall, people who fought to, have, to make this available to us, that fought and died for the sake of us being able to read and engage God's truths in a way that changes lives like, like no other thing that we engage with in this world as far as literature goes. No, people fought for this because they believed it shapes us, it reminds us and informs us about who God is and what He does for His people. Because that's what this book is about. From beginning to end, it is who God is and what He is always constantly doing for His people. Romans 15.4, it says, Paul writes this, "...for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope." God's Word was written for us to have hope. You know, hope is having this expectation that things are going to be okay. You know, hope is having this expectation that it doesn't matter what we face. It doesn't matter the struggle. It doesn't matter the failure. It doesn't matter the situation in front of us. That beyond that, 
is victory. That beyond that is hope. That beyond that is something worth waking up, getting dressed, and going out of the house for. Otherwise, without hope, we have nothing. You know, that's why, you know, when we talk and you, and you kind of hear and navigate through conversations with people that don't believe or even people who are, who are adamantly atheists and just push back against, uh, against God and who He is, uh, what hope is there? What reason is there for anything good? What reason is there for anything moral? What reason is there to get up? You know, in a lot of ways, I believe it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in a holy God creator of the universe that so obviously created everything with direction and purpose and, and intricacy in a way that there's no way it happens by accident. There's no way that molecules can hit together hard enough or goo can live long enough to develop into what we are today. And that's why we need God's holy word. Because the thing we have to remember, and a lot of people get this wrong, we don't worship the Bible, but the Bible informs our worship. We don't worship the Bible. This is just a book in a sense. We don't worship this book. But this book informs what we worship. This book informs how we worship. This book informs how we treat people. This book informs how we navigate life, how we raise our children, how we love our spouses. This book informs our lifestyle of worship. Jesus said in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures, talking to the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And so what he's telling them here is, is you've become so religious that you're worshiping a set of texts and you don't even realize that these texts are pointing to something greater. We don't worship the Bible, we worship what the Bible tells us about. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them, that the, the text, that the Bible, the Holy Scripture, are pointing us to the object of our worship, to something greater than even religious activities, that there's an entity, that there's someone greater than what we have in front of us. And that's what these texts are pointing us to. Because the reality is there's no translation that's perfect, even though people will fight you tooth and nail about it. But we believe that God's Word is infallible, without error, without contradiction, and it is a religious book greatly superior in accuracy and historical relevance than any other religious writing. This book is supported by more manuscript evidence than any other historical book. It is written over a period of 1,400 years, written by 40 different authors with three, in three different languages and over three different continents. And there is no word in it that contradicts the other. And typically, if someone argues a contradiction, it's because we're taking something out of context. And church, for us, as we navigate the discipline of study, we have to understand that this is more important than ever because as time goes on, culture becomes more hostile. As time goes on, it, the Bible tells us, culture becomes more hostile. Not only that, but within the church will become more hostile towards the truths of God's Word, where they will begin to, to mutate and kind of mold God's Word to fit the agenda of what they want. In, 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 in horrible ways of oppression and then other ways of just loosely living life however we want. We have to understand that God's Word is going to, as time moves on, us and God's Word is going to be under more pressure, more scrutiny. And so for us, as we navigate through the rest of this this morning, I want us to see a couple of different things. And the first thing I want us to see is why do we study this book? Why do we study this text? 2 Timothy, if you want to turn there with me or it'll be on the screen for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes this to a young elder pastor named Timothy. 
He writes this to be a sense of encouragement. He also writes this to be a sense of, of bringing Timothy's focus into what is most valuable and, and profitable in his ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, reading down to verse 16, it says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the, with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So what I love about 2 Timothy, 1st 2 Timothy are my, some of my favorite books of the Bible. And um, because what Paul is doing here, for one thing, these are, are, are uh, thought to be some of the last writings that Paul would write. Uh, and so there's this sense of urgency about Paul when he's writing. And not only that, but he's writing to someone that he's kind of, he's been a, a leader for, someone that he's kind of discipled. And so he's writing to them kind of these valuable, important truths. And here he's writing to him about the spiritual discipline of preaching and teaching God's Word and studying God's Word and why this is so valuable for his church. Because Paul he knows that the way God's church will continue to flourish isn't by programs, isn't by religious activities, it's not by, by trying to abide by the list of do's and don'ts, but it's about soaking God's people in His Word so that we are indwelt by the truths, that we're upheld by the promises and the faithfulness of our holy God every single day of our lives. That Paul, knowing because he was in the midst of being on trial and to be executed for his faith, which he would soon be shortly after writing this letter to Timothy, but Paul knew, Paul knew for us today, he knew that, that over a thousand, two thousand years from now, that people are going to be struggling and suffering for the faith. We're not experiencing it yet, but people all over the world are experiencing oppression in a way that we don't even know, that we, we have never experienced. And I pray that maybe we don't. But it's very likely that many of us will live in a day and age when the church is oppressed, when the church is, is, is marginalized, is pushed outside of what is acceptable by culture. And that the truths of God, God's word will be at the center of that scrutiny, as they already are. And so Paul shares with Timothy a few things about why God's word is so invaluable and important, why we should study it. And the first thing he says here is says that it's breathed out. It's breathed out. Some translations say that it's inspired by, which is exactly what Paul is trying to say. The first thing being that it is inspired by God himself. That this book is written by men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. We acknowledge that it is written by men, men who are not perfect, men who in their manuscripts probably made uh, mistakes in how they scribbled through some things and wrote through some things, and you figure you write things long enough, uh, many copies of something long enough, you're probably going to make some mistakes in how certain things are written. But the way that the truths are meshed together and the way that everything comes together communicates a truth that was guided by the Holy Spirit and dwelt in God's people in that time, that it was not rushed out, that time was taken over a matter of hundreds of years. It was Taken, uh, time was taken to put these things together and to communicate it to his people. It was written by men through the inspiration of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we know when it has to be inspired by God, and a lot of people say, well, I could write anything and say that it's inspired by God, and my challenge would be, well, then do it. 
Do it and see if it lasts. Do it and see if it has the longevity that God's Word does. Do it and see if it has the consistency that God's Word does because nothing in this world does. There is no other book in the entire world that has the consistency, the longevity, the honesty, and the survival and the influence that God's Word does. No other book. There is no other book that institutes life change, true life change. True life change like God's Word. Living your best life now may make you feel good for a few moments, but there's not true life change in that. True life change comes through this book. And I love it in in, in its honesty. I think that's something that we miss, that we we forget sometimes, is the honesty of the Bible. You would think that if these men were writing this book, and especially in the New Testament where several of these writers are writing their own letters and they're writing about themselves and their own experiences, there's several things I probably would have left out of it. Because it made me look pretty bad, right? There's, there's things, there's truths, there's realities in this book that when we read that about these particular people, we're like, wow. Like you call Peter a pillar of the church, a foundation of the church, and he stood in front of Jesus and denied him? That, that, that Peter, that Peter uh, you know, failed Jesus time and time again, and, and he's called a pillar of the church, but then Jesus would come and seek him out and find him and forgive him and tell him that you're going to lead my sheep? Because the Bible didn't shy away from being honest about the mess and the struggles of human beings. And if it would have, if this would have been a book of perfect people, I can tell you right now, today, we would not be reading it. Because the reality is people aren't perfect. We're sinful. And the moment I would have read through this book and we'd have sat down and be like, man, none of those people ever made any mistakes. I mean, you would think if a group of people wanted to shine a better light on their selves, they would have left a lot of these things out. But they didn't. You know, they, they, you, you would think if, if David is the first king, God's chosen king of Israel, you think we would have left a couple of things out of David's story, right? Probably left out his adultery with Bathsheba. You'd have probably left out the fact that he pointed uh, her, her husband to be on the front lines of a war to be murdered. We'd have probably left some of those things out. We'd have probably left out that the guy that God chose in the beginning to create, uh, that he said that, that your, your descendants will be as multiple, as, uh, as, as, as numerous as the stars in Abraham, that we probably would have left out that whenever uh, Abraham was at a particular place, when a group of men came to get him, that he offered to give up his wife and his daughters. We probably would have left that out, right? This is, this is, this is men that, the, that our church is built off of. And you know what? It's faulty people just like us, because God knew that his church will not only be established on people who are broken that are depending on him, but it will be carried on by broken people who depend on him. And that's what God's word reminds us of. It is inspired by God. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It carries with it the inspiration of God. And not only that, the second thing is that it carries life with it. it. Carries life with it. I love that Paul chose to use this phrase, breathed out, because what this reflects is a creation narrative. What this reflects is a creation narrative. If we we jump back to Genesis 2, uh, verse 7, we see the writer of Genesis saying this, Then the Lord God formed the man from d- of, d- uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. The same phrasing. Paul used creation communication to tell us about 
God's Word in the inspiration. So what we know about this book is where this book is different than any other book is that this book carries with it life. This book doesn't give life. Jesus gives life. The Holy Spirit indwelling in the believer gives life. But it carries with it the truth of life in a way that no other thing does. That it is the spiritual food for our sustaining. Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts were created. Job 33, 4, he said, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ezekiel 37, we see Jesus breathe into dry bones. We see God breathe into dry bones and that they come to life. The breath of God brings life, and Paul calls his Scripture breath. He calls his scripture that something that was breathed out, that life is given in his word. Paul didn't say that that life is given in religious ordinances. He didn't say that life is given in doing the do's and don'ts. He said life is given, breathed out by God's word because it communicates the promises of God. It tells us about the truth of who God is and what he's done. This is the only book that carries the truths of life, living in freedom and loving those around us in a true image-bearing way. The only place that comes from, the only place where true life, where life is, is sacred, where life is beautiful, where life has meaning, every life has meaning, is from this book. And not only that does he say that it's breathed out, but then he says that it's profitable. Not only that, it's profitable, but he says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. You know, there's, there's many religious leaders today that would tell us that we don't need the Old Testament. And a lot of times it's because we're afraid to kind of navigate some of the, the things that the Old Testament kind of carries with it. But the reality is we have to see this narrative from beginning to end, that we can't take things from one thing and, and start to believe certain things about God's character. But when we see those things play out over the, the scope of Genesis to Revelation, then we begin to see the true character of God kind of be manifested in His Word. And so we can know that all of this is profitable. And so what he's telling us is that there's something to be gained by God's Word, not just an empty engagement. That we're not just to read this like an, our favorite novel that we sit in front of the fire and read. But this is something to be to be gained from there is something here for us and he begins to lay out some things that we gain from it the first thing he says is that what we gain from it is teaching and doctrine what he's telling us is what we see from God's word is what is true about God who we are the world we live in and the world to come one of the greatest things that this does for me personally is that it reinforces our my gospel identity and the value of human life It reminds me that even in my darkest times, in the places where I fail, in the places where I'm trying to navigate uh, certain uncertainties, that there's a gospel identity that a believer in Jesus carries, that nothing can take that away. No person, no situation, no circumstance. Nothing can take it away. The second thing that he says is that, that we gain from it is reproof and correction. That what God's Word does for us and to us is it redirects us when we are moving down paths of destruction. Not robbing from us joy, but pointing us to greater joys. You know, Hebrews 4.12, it says that God's Word is like a two-edged sword. You know, in in, in a lot of ways, we find certain things about God's Word offensive to us. In a lot of ways, we don't like how it offends us because it challenges us. But the thing that we have to know, that as God's Word approaches us in that sharp manner, that God's Word cuts to cure, not to kill. 
that when God's word cuts us, when it says that it cuts us deeply, down to bone, down to marrow, when it cuts through us, when it starts to shave away our pride, when it starts to cut away our weaknesses, when it starts to cut away our desires for lesser things, does it hurt? Absolutely. Is there soreness? Absolutely. But we have to always remember that what God's Word does is it cuts to cure, not to kill. It does not come into our lives to rob from us. But what it is doing is it is doing like we do when you go into that surgery room and you've got that, that, that spot, that place on your lungs, on your liver, something like that, and they see it and they say, we've got to remove that. If we don't, it's just going to continue to grow and develop into something that's going to consume us. And so what God's Word does is it does just like that fine-tuned surgery that it leans into our lives and it cuts those things away that if we don't cut them away then they just develop and they begin to kind of take over everything around it and they just metastasize and moves to all the spaces of our bodies and so God leans into our lives with His Word and He begins to cut like the world's greatest surgeon. Cuts to cure. Cuts to take away those things. Cuts to take away shame. Cuts to take away sin. Cuts to take away temptation. He comes into our lives to take these things from us to lead us to greater joys. You know, one of the main reasons people refute the idea of Christianity or even the Bible is because we don't like the idea of accountability. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be told that our good isn't good enough to earn salvation. But I don't know about you, but it doesn't matter how much good I do. I'm always reminded that my good is not good enough. But I'm thankful that God's good is good enough. I'm thankful that Jesus is good on my behalf. His atoning work on the cross, bearing my sin, bearing my shame was good enough. And that is the hope that we gather, the profit that we get from God's word. The next thing is training in righteousness. What God's Word does is it shows us how to live in and pursue holiness, to walk in grace and to enjoy His mercy. It corrects, it redirects us and gets us on the path of righteousness that God intends for us to be on. And He does all of this, just like we've said over the last couple of weeks, He does all of this, the last thing, for every good work. Ultimately, God is leading us to be good, caring, and compassionate and effective to the world around us. That when we are engaged in God's Word and we are profiting by teaching and doctrine, when we're profiting by reproof and correction and training in righteousness, ultimately the people who will benefit from us is the people closest to us. Our spouses, our children, our faith family, the people we engage with at work. If we are just being fed and encouraged and profiting from God's Word, those people will benefit. Even the people that we don't agree with. Being indwelt with God's Word doesn't lead us to arguments. Leading a, being indwelt with God's Word leads us to patience through conversation. God's Word will never lead us to badger someone. God's Word will never lead us to be ugly or oppressive to someone. God's Word will lead us, if to nothing, to be patient. That through conversation, through leading with the person farthest from God that you know. God's Word does not lead us into arguments with those people. God's Word leads us into patience with those people. Believing, not in my argument or my convincing, but believing in God's goodness that those people can be changed. And that that'll happen through my kindness, through my patience, through my persistence, continuing to share the love of Jesus with them, continuing to be that, 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 that direction of love and compassion towards them, that everything that we gain from God's Word leads us to effect, effective work. Proverbs 16.3 
It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And so once we know why we study, we'll finish up with how do we do this? How do we do this on a practical level? And one of the things for me, just as I was preparing, I felt like I needed to engage with, or we needed to engage with, and be honest about why we don't study. Why don't we engage with God's Word? Why don't we pick it up? Why do we fall into the one in five who never read it? Why do we fall into the 42% that believe that it's not really necessary? I can hear the preacher talk about it on Sunday. I don't need it Monday through Saturday. And the only thing about that for us, and I've, I know it because I've experienced it in my own life, that's like coasting into the gas pump. That's like coasting into the gas pump on empty. Whenever we put ourselves in those situations, we become spiritually anemic. I'm telling you right now, you will be spiritually anemic if you depend on my voice on Sunday. And so for us, let's be honest about why we don't. The Gospel Coalition had several really good reasons. I just want to focus in on a few and kind of share these, and we can kind of talk about these a little bit. Five reasons why we don't read God's Word. The first thing is that it's hard. we have a hard time consuming it. You know, that we have a hard time consuming it. That we, we get, you know, even for us, you know, we put out these reading plans and we begin to look at those reading plans and it's four to five chapters of different books and so we begin reading it and we just kind of get bogged down. We get overwhelmed with it. But for us, I hope that what we can see and when we find it as being a hard time to just consume God's Word, that we would look at the long-term effects and maybe consider how much we're trying to take in. You know, you think about it, if you starve yourselves... You know, I, and I'm really bad about this, and I know we've probably talked about this. I'm really bad about not eating lunch because I'm just working, I'm running and gunning. So but then by the time I get home that, that later afternoon, I'm so hungry, I just stuff as much as I can into my mouth, and guess what? I pay for it later. I mean, can you imagine if we kind of put it in the context of, of, of Sunday to Sunday as far as our spiritual nature, if we never, never engage God's Word except for Sundays, and then we set ourselves out to, we say we grab a reading plan, or we say, hey, I'm going to read three or four chapters of a book, or, or I'm going to dive into Leviticus or Deuteronomy, good Lord, if, you start, if that's your starting point. You know, we get into that and we begin reading it. It's like stuffing, or we, it's like being uh, hungry, it's like being uh, starved and just stuffing ourselves with as much as we can put in. What does it do? What do we do? You know, I tell all, uh, you know, as I'm navigating nursing situations, I tell all my patients, hey, if your stomach doesn't want it, it's going to get rid of it. If it's too much to tolerate, it's going to get rid of it. And so a lot of times I believe that's how we navigate taking in God's Word is we try to shove too much in. We're just not prepared. We're not trying to be uh, precise or delicate with how we're reading it. Maybe we just feel like I just got to do this task and so we jump into it. Well, then we end up over, overdoing it to the point where we're just like, oh, I just can't. I'm just sick of it. You know, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He, you know, I don't know if you know much about Charles Spurgeon, but he had a massive church in England called the Prince of Preachers. Uh, this is what he had to say about his engagement with God's Word. He says, some people like to read so many chapters every day. He said, I would not dissuade them from the practice, but I would rather lay my soul a soak in half a dozen verses a day rather than rinse my hand in several chapters. Oh, to be bathed in a text of Scripture and to let it be sucked up into, into your very soul till it saturates your heart. Set your heart upon God's Word. Let your whole nature be plunged into it as cloth into a dye. 
And what a beautiful illustration. You know, place, he says, I would rather take in six verses a day than several chapters. He said, I'd rather be soaked in this, in the truths, in the beauty of God's word, rather than trying to take in so much that I can't. So maybe that's something that we consider. It's hard to consume. Maybe we limit how much we try to take in. The second thing is that we find it boring. Listen, I'm not going to argue with you on some spaces. When you, re- when you read in the Old Testament, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, and you see lineage after lineage after lineage, and law after law, and you see chapter after chapter after chapter of how the, the Holy of Holies is built, how the temple is built, how the altar is built, it's this many cubits, and this type of wood, and this type of gold, and this type of place, and you move it here. Yeah, those are the, those are the chapters where you... Okay, all right, we're going to go on to the New Testament. You know, I, I get it. I get it, and I'm not arguing with you on that. But the thing that I hope we can understand as we're navigating some of those drier points of the Bible, that this is where we can't let our feelings overcome our reasons. That we may not feel like this is super beneficial, but we know we're reading it for reasons beyond that. We know we're reading it for reasons beyond just this immediate moment. The third thing this morning, I'll keep on moving, is that it isn't practical that we read the Bible and we feel so disconnected from it. We feel like this is so distant from us. We feel like there's, there's, this just doesn't feel like it relates to me. But I love what God's Word constantly tells us, is that it tells us that from the heart comes out action. That what we've taken in is what, what pushes, what guides, what directs our actions. And when we're reading God's Word, when we're reading the text, what we see is we see truths about grace. We see truths about mercy. We, tru- we see wisdom. We see, you know, I love how the Bible is written in different writing styles. It's written in a poetic sense. It's written in historical senses. It's written in literal senses. It's written in all these different ways to kind of, kind of challenge us and kind of engage our mind in all these different ways so that we can see the truths of God's Word and that it could begin to motivate the way we act. Because there are so many, even in, you know, one of the things that, that I've encouraged people to do is, hey, just read a chapter of Proverbs a day. You know, there's, there, there's, there's 31 Proverbs, one a day for most months, you know, take one in. And, you know, it's amazing that when you begin to engage God's Word like that, how you find this book of wisdom written and how it's so applicable to where we are. Over a thousand years from when it was written, and it still finds its place where we are. The fourth thing is that it's difficult to consistently read it if I had to say it another way, that there is spiritual warfare involved in our engagement in God's Word. Because the thing we have to always remember is that we must know that every time we begin to move in directions of spiritual victories, we're going to encounter spiritual enemies. They're meant to discourage us, they're meant to throw us off course, and they're meant to direct us. So my challenge for us this week to be engaging in God's Word daily, and however that looks for you, whatever fits with your appetite. If you're a great reader and you can just sit and soak in a lot, then read a lot. If you can only take in small portions at a time, take small portions at a time. But I promise you what will happen this week in your engagement in God's Word is that spiritual warfare will be happening, and that as you move towards points of spiritual victories, you will encounter spiritual enemies. It may be enemies you've had in the past, it may be 
new enemies of distraction, of, uh, of discouragement, whatever it might be. The enemy is going to attack you. The enemy is going to whisper in your ear, why do you need this? The enemy is going to whisper into your ear, you have so many other things you could be doing right now that are more productive in the immediate moment. The, the enemy is going to whisper into your ear, do you really believe this? The enemy is going to whisper into your ear all of these lies to distract us because our life is constant spiritual warfare. And when we're moving towards victories, we're going to face enemies. And so we have to be prepared for that. That we don't allow those things to discourage us. And the fifth and last thing for this is that it doesn't engage my emotions. It doesn't engage my emotions. And unfortunately, I believe that this is a product of our modern church. Is that we believe that true spiritual experiences only happen when we feel emotional. Do you, do you hear me like in that? Do you, do you understand? Like, have you seen that? Have you experienced that? Have you heard people talk about that before? It's a very sad state of where the church is here today. Because listen, I can go. You'll go on. You could go online today after this. And when we get out, a lot of churches are going to be being. Oh, they're going to be online. And you see these churches. You see the experience. You're like, oh my gosh! Like that just feels so awesome. That looks like a great experience. And listen, I'm not negating those things. I'm not saying that some of those things aren't great. Listen, you can go to a church down the road. There's churches and so for like probably have amazing experiences, great emotional encounters. But the thing we can't do is we can't say that God's engagement with us is limited to our emotional state. Because listen, I don't know about you, even coming in here this morning, sometimes we come in and we don't feel like it. Listen, sometimes I don't feel like leading. Sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. Sometimes I don't feel like reading. Listen, if we allow our feelings to drive us, it's like walking around a dark space. We've talked about this before. It's like walking around a dark room, just trying to navigate. We're never going to reach the doorway because we're walking in the dark, depending on our feelings to get us there. Our emotions are a horrible measuring stick for God's work in us. Listen, and God's Word tells us that. There's time and time and time again when men and women felt as if God was absent. The whole book of Psalms is one, ver- one chapter after another of David saying, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, have you forsaken me? Have you left me? But then constantly followed by, God, you're good and I depend on you. God, I know your faithfulness is good and will never let me go. God, I know that you've got me in the shadow of your wings. God, I know you're my refuge. You're my strong tower. If David lived his life based on his feelings, David would have given up a long time ago. He'd have given up long before Bathsheba. He'd have given up long before his murder, his, his, his murder of, 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 of Bathsheba's husband. Church, we have been... We have been convinced that emotions and how we engage something emotionally is the measuring stick for spiritual depth. But in reality, it's like raking leaves compared to mining for gold. A pursuit of value and beauty and substance rather than a momentary sugar high is what we should crave. Listen, you can go to a lot of places and have a great emotional experience. I pray that what we offer you here at Crosspoint Community Church, not that some of those things are great, I pray that we always offer you depth. I pray that, that, that God's truth is the, the thing that you always hear from whoever stands up here and shares God's word with you. It doesn't engage my emotions. And so as we move into the, 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 the last, and, and then I'll be done. Four ways 
You know, I had mentioned that Robert Foster has written extensively on, uh, on spiritual disciplines. He gives four ways for us to do this. Four ways to engage study. Four ways to kind of develop habits. And the first one is repetition. You know, and so to engage repetition, we have to have a plan. And not only that, but it begins as we establish a plan and we come back to that plan, back to that plan, back to that plan, whatever it might be, depending on your spiritual diet, that it will contribute to building habits. And the thing that we have to know about habits is that habits take weeks. Research says that habits take at the minimum weeks to develop. And in many cases, it suggests that it takes months to develop healthy habits. And so for us, in our repetition, could we not give up? Could we not give up? That we keep coming back, that we keep sticking to our plan, whatever that might be, that even if we fall off a day, even if we fall off several days, even if we fall off a week, that we come back and we reestablish that rhythm and that repetition. The second thing is concentration, that we would have devoted attention, that when we begin to engage God's Word in whatever capacity it is, that we would have devoted attention. Eliminate our distractions. My suggestion, I almost dropped my phone, don't read it on your phone. Don't read it on your iPad. Get, get a hard copy of God's Word. Because you know what, and I've said this many times before, the only thing you can do with this is read God's Word. I pick this thing up, I can be on whatever, YouTube, whatever, in a second. I can be in my calendar looking at what I got for the week in a second. You know, and not only that, and, and I almost brought it today, but I didn't, but you know, I, I have a Bible of my grandmother's that passed away that was such a spiritual influence in my life. You know what's amazing is that I can go to that book, I can crack it open, and I can see things that she wrote down. Her engagement with God through her personal study, through, through her hearing sermons, through, through notes and different things, she wrote those things out. Just seeing her heart poured out on that page just, just gives me such a sense of satisfaction and encouragement. And so I, I pray, I pray that I can leave my kids with something like that. I pray that I can write God's work in my heart on my Bible and that whenever I'm gone that my kids can pick up my, my version of God's Word and see, man, how God was working in my heart at particular times of my life, what I was hearing from God at that particular moment. I mean, what a beautiful legacy to pass on to our family when we've engaged God's Word and then someone can go back and physically read it and to see the spiritual makeup of our families. I think it's a beautiful thing. And so my encouragement would be to have God's Word where you can engage with it personally. The third thing is comprehension. That we allow ourselves a moment of thinking through the meaning, maybe even utilizing the many resources available to help and to utilize even utilizing your faith community. You know, we've got, uh, right now, two great opportunities to engage spiritually with each other, with our men's group and our women's group. You know, stepping around God's Word, having conversations about God's truth, praying for each other, things like that. These are great things that we can use. And also, just because we live in such an information age, there are so many resources readily available to us to begin to uh, comprehend God's Word. Obviously, we need trustworthy resources, and I pray that we could always kind of point you in the right direction of that, but there are ways to help us comprehend what God is trying to communicate communicate to us in his word. And then the last thing, the last thing that we can do in establishing these rhythm and habits is reflection. And I think this is a very important one for us and one that we don't always do because a lot of times we approach this with a very task-oriented approach. You know, we approach it believing that we just kind of got to get through it. We're trying to finish our reading plan. We're trying to do our devotion for the night just so we can say that we've done it. 
But we're, what we're called to here and what I believe is a great practice is reflection. And another way to say that would be meditation. You know, a lot of times we as Christians, we kind of shy away from meditation because it feels a little too uh, Eastern medicine for us, you know. But I think meditation is a beautiful thing. You know, and, and the way the word meditation is translated, it means to, to chew on it, to savor it. You know, in, uh, in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, he kind of communicates it like this. Your words were found and I ate them. I mean, so obviously he's not eating whatever it was written on. But he's communicating to us this idea of meditation, of savoring God's word. He says, I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He says because he ingested, because he savored, because he, he meditated on God's word, that he was able to, to constantly come to the real of his, realization of his calling. I am called by your name. I am called by your name. You know, and I, I think about it, you know, continuing on with this kind of like food illustration, that eating food quickly will clean our plate, right? Eating food quickly will clean our plate, but it will not satisfy our palate. Right? We, you can have the greatest six-ounce steak in the world. If you eat it as fast as you can, you have nowhere in, near enjoyed what it is to eat that steak. If I spend $30 on a steak, you best believe I'm going to savor every bite. And that's what God calls us to. That as we engage His Word, taking it in based off of our spiritual, our spiritual tolerance and appetite at that time, that as we take it in, that we savor it. We savor every bite. You know, because in a lot of ways, kind of communicating based off of what Jeremiah said, that the early Christians thought of meditation as a way that was described as preaching to yourself. So for us, what we do when we meditate on God's Word is that we take His Word, that we hear it, we read it, we mull it over in our minds, and then we bring it to bear upon our lives in personal engagement that we preach it to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach His promises to ourselves so that, like Jeremiah, we could say, for I am called by Your name, O Lord God of hosts. Church, true study is placing ourselves before God, His instruction, and His purposes for us. And that, like we said earlier, our study empowers and informs our worship. It instills in us confidence. It empowers us in our walk. And this is something we desperately need every single day. And church, so for us today, as, we, as I wrap up, to evaluate our engagement with God's Word. Not in a sense, like we talked about with the other disciplines. This is not to shame us. This is to refocus us, to bring us back into what we are called to, what God's invited us to partake in. That even though we, we, we say all the time that God has invited us to his table, that spiritual disciplines are like partaking in the meal he's prepared for us. Through prayer, fasting, and this week studying is how we walk with God in our lives. And so for us, if we live in fear, if we walk in doubt of our place with God, our concerns about His character, or even bitterness towards His church, this is evidence that we're not feasting on and taking, meditating on God's Word in a way where it influences our mindsets. Because listen, people will live in bitterness and doubt and fear 
for a lifetime because either we've depended on someone else's communication of God's Word to us and they've heard us, or the way it's been communicated is false and it affects us negatively. But when we begin to, because of the way people have fought and died for us to personally engage with God's Word, it will always lead us, like when we finished our book, the book of Galatians, it will always lead us to grace. It will always lead us to forgiveness. It will always lead us to joy. It will always lead us to engage and to be satisfied in God. And in that, like Paul told Timothy, it will lead us to effective work for the world around us, for our families, for our kids, for our spouses, for our friends and families at work. That God's Word will empower us to walk confidently in that. So could we bow our heads this morning and just allow God to challenge us? Where, where have we missed engaging God's Word? Where have we missed these moments where God is wanting to reveal to us the truths of what He sees in us, for us, and how we navigate being involved in this universal church of broken people who have disappointed us, who have, who have let us down? God has called us to forgiveness. God has called us to greater joy and greater things. I pray that we can find that. I pray that, that for us this morning, as, as you, you challenge yourself in these ways, maybe these, these things that we talked about, why we don't, are there any of those excuses that we make? Are there any of those complaints that we have about God's Word as we navigate studying? Could we engage those things, be honest about those things, and begin to pray, God, how can you bring me and draw me into a routine, into a rhythm of life that always engages your Word or wants your Word, has a thirst or a hunger for your Word? to better me, to better the local church that we're a part of, to better our families, to better our experience at the workplaces? How do we engage that? Could we challenge ourselves this morning? Could we challenge ourselves this morning and to set out from here this morning, going into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and engage God's Word in some capacity? Could we do that this morning? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the challenge that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for Paul's instruction to us that all scripture is breathed out, that it bears life with it. God, I pray that we would engage this life that you've given to us through your holy word. Father God, I pray that we would engage with it at home. I pray that we would see the beauty in, in, in what you've given us in it. God, I pray that we would see the, 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 the truths that you have in it for us, Father. Father God, I pray that whatever excuses we have this morning, God, I pray we would begin to lay those at your feet right now. God, and that we step out from here. God, and we begin to engage in your word in the life that it bears personally. God, for doctrine and teaching. God, for correction. God, for training in righteousness. God, leading us into our world, being a light, being loving and patient with the people around us, Father God. Let us be those people, Lord. God, we love you. God, I just want to thank you again for today and all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray.